This morning we are in the book of Philippians. We're nearing, uh, nearing the end. If you have your Bibles or have one there in the pew in front of you, you can open to the middle of Philippians chapter 3. We've been thinking about our life together in community, particularly the community of God's people, the church. Today, I'm, I'm asking us to think about what maturity looks like in a community. Throughout the first three chapters of this letter, there's, there's a, a recurring theme from Paul that, that maturity or, or the aim of our community is a particular way of thinking, a mindset that translates then in a way of, of living and being together. He says that we're to have the mind of Christ in us. But that's not just a, a state of, of mind. It's not just a, an intellectual idea. It translates into obedience and, and lived actions and attitudes with respect to our relationships with each other. So we'll be thinking about, about keeping that in mind, moving toward that as a form of maturity... But there are times, I think, where communities or organizations or teams of people struggle to remember what it is they've been called together to do, to keep that that goal or mission in mind. I am a a basketball fan. I have been since I was a little kid. And I like when I have the occasion to watch the NBA or to at least follow some of the teams. But if you happen to like uh, professional basketball you'll know that this month, February, is probably the worst time to watch basketball in the entire season. February is is the sleepy kind of middle part of that season. We're past the first few months of the season, so that initial excitement has worn off. Some of the players are starting to get injured or, you know, they're, they're wearing out. And the playoffs are still several months away, so there's, there's not that great sense of urgency to, to sort of pick up the game. And so in the, the middle of the winter, the intensity of professional basketball trails off a little bit. And this is maybe most pronounced in the, the middle of the season when they hold the All-Star game. The NBA All-Star game has sort of gained a reputation of being just about the most boring sporting event you can watch. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of a privilege to get to play in the game, but nobody wants to get hurt. And so all the guys are, are kind of jogging half speed back and forth. Nobody's playing defense. And the game never really moves past what feels like, you know, pregame warm-ups. It's just not a lot of, of fun to put on television. And so the, the NBA was trying to figure out what to do about that problem. And this past Sunday, a week ago today, was the All-Star Game for this year. And, and the game kind of followed that script, for the most part, for the first three quarters of the game. But right around 11 o'clock at night, when most of us were already in bed or heading to bed, suddenly as they entered the fourth quarter of that match, things got red hot in the All-Star Game. Suddenly in the fourth quarter, people started swarming on defense. People were rebounding all of a sudden. They were blocking the other team's shots. They were fouling. They were taking charges. Just about every sports reporter in America on Monday said it was maybe the best quarter of all-star game basketball they'd ever seen played. 
Somehow in that fourth quarter, the guys in the game went from goofing around to playing with purpose, right? They were playing for keeps. They wanted their side to win. But behind the the burst of intensity was an experimental rule change that the NBA tried out the first time that game. And the the rule change suggested uh, a way, a different way of, of scoring or declaring a winner at the end of the match. After three quarters of play, both teams had point totals in in the 130 range. There were a couple of baskets apart. But instead of finishing the game with a traditional 12-minute quarter, you know, they just run out the clock and, and whoever's ahead at the end of the quarter wins. Instead, they took the clock away and they gave the players a scoring target. And they said, whichever team reaches 157 points on the scoreboard first will be declared the winner however long it takes you to get there. A 12-minute quarter took nearly an hour to finish because suddenly everybody wanted to get to that target. They were, again, playing with this incredible intensity. And finally, after only almost, almost an hour, I think 52 minutes or something later, one of the teams hit a, a final free throw that sealed the game, and they were, they were declared the champions this year. But having that that singular, sort of more concrete target changed the energy, it changed the psychology of the whole game dramatically. And it gave them a clearer, more defined, we might say a more mature mindset about what they were playing for in the first place. Now, February is also maybe a difficult month for us in community. We've been holed up inside, right? We're we're sort of sleepy, we're tired. We may, in the middle of a long winter, in our own communities, struggle with a, a sense of abstraction or ambiguity about what it is we're actually doing here together. Are we just kind of going through the motions, right? Jogging back and forth at half speed up and down the court? Or do we know what we're playing for? Do we know why we've been called into existence as a people? What is it we're meant to embody and and be living out together? So this morning, as we look at the second half of Philippians 3, the first part of chapter 4, I want us to consider what, what Paul says that target, what that objective, what that purpose is for us as a community. Let's turn there together and let me pray for us as we do that. Jesus, some of us have been part of this community, part of the church for for many years. Some of us may have only recently been drawn into what this is about. But I pray you would refresh and renew, give us a new and clearer perception of where we are directed, where we are aimed together. Pray that the words of my mouth as I teach, that the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're picking up right in the middle of a chapter, and kind of in in the middle of one long section, one train of thought from Paul. 
And that train of thought kind of began back at the the beginning of chapter 3 last week, verses 1 through 14, where Paul shared primarily about his own story, kind of his own autobiography, about how he left behind one kind of community and moved toward a new way of, of being in community. He talked about how he left behind that, that identity he had as a, as a Jew, as someone whose, whose community was defined primarily along ethnic and kind of religious status lines. And instead, he stepped into this new community of people that were gathered solely around the person of Jesus. They're, they're in Christ Jesus, he says. That's the defining characteristic of the church community. And he likened that, that journey to a race that he's been running in, where he's leaving the past behind and, and straining toward, leaning toward, right? Struggling toward what is ahead. This in Christness that he speaks about. This morning, and then we're, we're jumping in at the, the end of that train of thought in verse 15. Where Paul kind of breaks from speaking about his own autobiography. And now he's he's speaking again to his friends there in Philippi. And he says, stay in this race with me. And he wants them to consider what it looks like for them to make their own break with, with sort of counterfeit forms of community they may be drawn to in the Gentile world. He says... Run this race together with me. Leave leave those other counterfeit forms of community behind and press on toward your identity in Christ together with me. Look at verse 15 through 17 as we start. It says, All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And that that phrase there, such a view of things, means to, to have this mindset, to... To, to keep in mind the lordship of Jesus Christ, to have the mind of Christ that he's spoken about again and again in this letter. All of us who are mature should, should keep that in mind. And if on some point you think differently, well, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. If you're wondering whether you need to pay attention this morning, whether this passage has relevance to you, well, Paul gives us his intended audience right here in verse 15. He says, what we're about to read is for all of us who are mature question then is, are you mature? You might need to ask your friends or your family who are here with you if you qualify. And if you need to excuse yourself, uh, we understand, you know, not, not everybody fits that category. But he says, for all of us who are mature, then have this mind. Take this view. Now, maturity, of course, means different things in different contexts. Right? Maturity, sometimes we, we use it to convey a sense of seriousness or, or grown-upness in a given situation. Other times, mature is a, a polite way of avoiding calling something old. Right? We call it mature. 
But for Paul's purposes here, the way I think he's using this word is not so much thinking of maturity as a chronological marker, as as a marker of age. He's thinking of maturity more as a way to express movement. He uses, the word in Greek is telos, which sounds a lot like the the same, uh, a similar noun, telos. And it conveys the idea of arriving at a destination. It, it, it conveys the idea of completion or, or approaching kind of an intended target. Maturity is about reaching a particular destination. And again, I think this is tied up in what just came before these verses, where Paul has likened himself to a runner in a race. He's going somewhere. He's pressing on to get there. And he says, then, then all of us, if, if we're mature, we should also have the same telois. Right? We should be moving in, in a particular direction, seeking to, to arrive, to complete. To be a community that is growing in maturity means that we are increasingly headed in the right direction. We know where we're going. And if you read over these first few verses, 15, 16, 17, you kind of get the sense that Paul is saying, let me give you a view, let me give you a map of where the Christian life is meant to take us. And then he says, and and having seen that, with that in mind, then join me, imitate me, follow me toward that end. Let's attain, he says, to the standard we've been given. Let's make forward progress in that direction. But, but if nothing else, let's not go back. Let's not go back to the things we've already left behind in terms of who we are as a community. And so if a mature community knows its destination, that begs the question, right? Well, then what is it? Where are we headed? What is the target we are aiming toward? Beginning in verse 18, I think we get this this map, this clearer picture of two different possibilities, two different courses that our communities may find ourselves navigating. Look with me at 18 through 21. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny... There, it's almost the same word as maturity. It's uh, telos. Their destiny is destruction. That's their target. Right? Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. That's one course, one destination. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord, the King, the Ruler, Jesus Christ. Who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies. So that they will be like his glorious body. And there's there's two options laid out here. And what they... Where, where they come together, for Paul, where, where all of life comes together, where there's, there's one major intersection, one major crossroads at the center of our existence. 
And it's the cross of Jesus Christ. How do we confront the reality of the cross? What do we do with this message, this gospel that Paul preaches? That the God we worship was crucified, was put to death, right? suffered humiliation. How do we square with that? Paul says, really, you know, there might be some nuances here, but there's, there's really only two possibilities of what we do with the cross. Back in verse 15, Paul encouraged us toward, toward the telois, toward the maturity of those who in Jesus decide to imitate Jesus, to have the same mind that was in Jesus, who set aside equality with God in order to be emptied, to pour himself out, to be humbled. And then the Father raised him up. There's, there's a maturity, but in verses 18 and 19 now, he warns about the telos or the destiny of those who don't embrace that position. Those who don't have that mindset. He says, there are many who walk through life as enemies of the cross of Christ. This then would be the way of immaturity. And we might kind of leap to suppose that Paul is speaking about oppressive governments like the one he was facing in Rome or, or regimes that we know about in modern times that lock people up, right? These are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Or maybe we think about sort of loud voices like Richard Dawkins or the New Atheists or people who are, are public enemies of organized religion. But I'm not sure we need to look that far away for enemies of the cross. In fact, we probably could locate plenty of resistance to the cross of Jesus right here in our pews, right here within us. The great Christian Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard puts this rather bluntly. He said, in Christendom, within, within the church world, There is an everlasting Sunday babbling about Christianity's glorious and priceless truths, about its gentle consolation. But he says, we know far too little about the offense of the cross. He goes on to say that most of the time we're content to admire and extol the cross. And again, it's an object of of worship and veneration But he says we're too cowardly and flabby to pick up our own cross. In this way, then, most Christian communities, I think, most that I've been a part of, remain immature. We struggle to know what to do with the cross. Because to be a mature community means the cross belongs to us in some measure, that it costs us something. It's not just something we worship, but something Jesus calls us to to participate in, Paul says. The cross means not going our way. The cross means not coming in first place. The cross means not being armed with control of our destiny. 
And so there's so much about the cross that I am tempted to steer around, to navigate away from. And it's tempting then to consider what it might be like to worship some other god. And for most of us, that's not wholesale. It's not embracing some other faith or religion. Instead, it, it looks like embracing a form of Christianity that's no longer cruciform. That does away with the cross, at least as it applies to me. Right? I might make my God my stomach, as Paul says here, or my appetites, my desire for pleasure. I might make an accommodation for, for the God within me that needs validation. My God might be my desire to belong to someone or to something. Right? My need to worship something could drive me in all sorts of different directions. But Paul says, when it drives me away from the cross, when I'm no longer headed in that direction, then what I, what I hope and intend and assume will be to my glory, Paul says, its destiny is actually to my destruction. Right? That way has its telos, not in maturity, but, but in, in the destruction of my very being and existence. It's pure emptiness, obliteration. Beginning, though, in verse 20, Paul says there, there is a way of maturity. There is a different road for us to walk on. And he wants to help us see further on, further in, further past the cross, if, if we can. He knows that we hesitate to walk in this way together. The way of, of humility and weakness. But he says, if we choose, if we endeavor to be a people that are on the way of the cross, live a cruciform existence with each other, then we are ultimately on a road that leads us to citizenship in heaven. He says, this is your identity. This is, this is connected to the cross. And he says, on that road, we may eagerly expect the Lord Jesus to meet us. Paul says, hidden behind the cross with, with all of its shame and its weakness, hidden behind that is, is a reality and a power of, of heavenly proportions waiting to break into our existence. Verse 21. The same Jesus who was crucified, Paul says. He is the one who is truly king. This Jesus is, is about bringing all things under his control. And his body, remember, it's been exalted and raised up by the Father. And so too, when you embrace the low way, the humble way, the weak way, you have the promise that you and your bodies will also be exalted with his. Paul says, walk in this way. Walk with this hope. The cross is the place where we have received redemption, right? You can't be bought back. You can't belong to the saving power of Jesus if you don't go the way of the cross. Otherwise, you're on that other path and it doesn't go where you think it does. The two ways there in 18 to 21, 
present us with a paradox. There is a way that appears easy and glorious and pleasurable and powerful. The way where I am in control of God. Paul says that way terminates in destruction. On the other hand, there is a road that appears to begin with destruction. It appears to begin with death and emptiness and a cross. But Paul says that way leads to a truly glorious reality. That way leads to heaven breaking into earth. He says that is our telos. Those who are telois, those who are mature, will aim in that direction. We need to be a community that is cruciform. Therefore, he says in chapter 4, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Dear friends, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Paul draws a specific, a particular application from this this call to walk as a mature community, to run as a mature community. And he has in mind these particular individuals. Again, remember back in chapter 3, Paul begins this metaphor of running the race, knowing where we're going, pressing on toward what's ahead. His plea here is that his friends would keep running with him. He says, my brothers and my sisters. There's this pile up of of sort of adjectives of affection here. He loves these people. These are people Paul knows personally. Longs for them. And he calls them my joy and my crown. And the the idea there probably is, is the crown that the victor of a race gets to win and wear. He says... Those who I'm running with and for in this race of faith, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Don't lose sight of your telos. Don't lose sight of your destination. Don't stop running toward your citizenship in heaven. Don't give up on this race with me. Back in May, there was a Facebook photo that went viral And it was from the Pittsburgh Marathon. And it was posted under the hashtag, we run together. And if you saw the news story connected to that photo, there was a a woman from Pittsburgh, Laura Mazur. And she was at the 14-mile mark in a 26-mile marathon. She had run several other marathons, but she was having difficulty that day. And she found herself uh, at the very back of the race. There was the, the sweep car you know, who picks people up that are no longer able to stay on the course, right behind her. And she said she was paranoid about finishing the race last. She didn't want that stigma of crossing the finish line last. And so she was debating whether to quit 
And as she was thinking this over, she turned to look over her shoulder and she saw there was one more person behind her. She wasn't last. But as they they evened up with each other, she turned to the, the person and she said, I'll stay with you if you stay with me. So for the next 12 miles, they held hands as they ran together. They never never met before, right? They became friends over the the next few hours until they were the last two people across the finish line. But they crossed at the same time. They got there together. They finished the race. And I wonder if in verse 2 here we have these two women, Yodia and Syntyche, who are also struggling somehow to stay the course. Now we don't, we don't know the context. Paul doesn't give us the details. But given that he does tell us there is significant suffering happening, happening in Philippi, significant persecution at this time, I wonder if the way of the cross, that destination just became too overwhelming. Maybe the the finish line felt too far off. Maybe they felt like in their community, in their society, they were always running in last place. And so something was tempting them to to turn aside, maybe to give up, or to, to make the way of Jesus fit more neatly into the Roman values of their city. Whatever the case, right, there's there's a struggle here. Paul urges them that to be in Christ is to have one mind, to be of the same mind with each other, the same mind that was in Christ Jesus, the same mind that Paul has adopted as as an apostle who's left his past behind. Paul says, in the race we're running, there aren't places being handed out. You don't get ahead of the finish line faster than someone else. Right? My way is not in competition with your way. In Christ, we are a mature community who runs this race together. And we're called to, to keep pace with one another. Right? If you feel like you're running in last place, and a lot of times the way of the cross feels like, like you're trailing behind everyone else. Right? You're not outwardly victorious. Paul says to do that well, we need the community to come around us. And you see in verse 3, Paul calling for that that support. He says, come around these women. Help them. Encourage them. Take hold of them, Paul says. Those who have contended with me for the gospel. And keep them moving toward the telos. Keep them moving toward the finish line. Remind them of what it is to be citizens of heaven, citizens of this community. Bring them, manifest to them the mind of Christ. To choose the way of the cross, even its suffering, even its weakness, because of the heavenly prize it contains. And so as as an application then, are we noticing those who who are trailing behind, those who are struggling to to keep walking the way of Jesus. Right? And and are we coming around them? Are we encouraging them? 
Are we drawing near to them so that they can run together with us? Let me pray for our community this morning. Lord, I pray that you would refresh us with your maturity in this body. That we might be a people who know where we are headed. That we are a people who have, have counted the cost, counted the cross, and are asking for your strength to keep choosing that way. To belong as citizens of heaven. And Lord, we pray that we would come alongside and beside and around one another. Pray for those who are hurting, those who are suffering, those who are tempted, those who are doubting, that they might feel the hand of a brother or sister on their shoulder or at their side this morning. And Lord, call us upward and into kingdom that is about to break in. In Jesus' name we pray.